Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 146, verses 3 through 10. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever, your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, much like every sermon uh, in an age of COVID, uh, I preach on Thursday mornings. And the reason why I say Thursday morning is because as of right now, we still do not know who the next president of our nation will be. Uh, but I suspect that by the time this is aired on Sunday morning, we will all know who the next president of our nation will be. And so preaching a sermon pre-election, but having it aired post-election can be a little bit tricky. Um, but there are some thoughts by way of preamble to this sermon that I want to share. And the first is, uh, if your candidate has lost, uh, you're probably feeling pretty hopeless, anxious, and worried. And I want you to know that that's very understandable. Uh, politics is a big deal. And politics is something that God has made. And when the wrong politician is in charge, uh, it really can be the difference between life and death. It can be the difference between the good life and not experiencing the good life. It can be the difference between being able to live in this nation and not live in this nation. Your business surviving and not COVID being here for another couple months versus another full year. Um, you getting healthcare. I mean, the ramifications of who is in charge are very, very big. And I want you to know that the Bible doesn't have this sort of laissez-faire, cavalier, quesara, attitude about about the nature of politics. Uh, if anything, it has a very robust view of politics. And so if your candidate has lost, I want you to know that if you are feeling hopeless and, and afraid and anxious, that it's very understandable. And in fact, when you read the book of Psalms, one third of the Psalms are lamentations. It is filled with lament. And the key here is to remember that as a psalmist lament about their situation, that they are not just directing it at other people or on social media, but the psalmists are directing their lamentations towards God. And so if your candidate has lost and you feel really, really hopeless and afraid and anxious, uh, I want to encourage you to direct those fears and concerns to God. And if your candidate has won, you're probably really elated and happy right now. Uh, but I also want you to remember that if your candidate has won, that even the best of men are men at best. Uh, when you read through the pages of scripture, King Saul, for example, was literally head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He was better looking than everyone else. He was a better fighter than anyone else. And yet 
when you read the biography of his life, his life ends with tragedy. King David, arguably the greatest king in Israelite history, um, King David was um, had a life of moral failure. King Solomon, the wisest king in Israelite history, was a very promiscuous man. And so if your candidate won, I want you to remember that even the best of men are men at best. Um, Sam Alberry, an author, once said, do you want to know how impressive we are as humans? We spend one third of our lives sleeping. That is how impressive we are. And what Alberry is saying is that, again, even the best of men, we are just men at best. And so whether your candidate has lost or your candidate has won, uh, if there's one thing that I want us all to hear as Christians is something that John Newton once said. And if you're unfamiliar with Newton, Newton just happened to have written the most famous song in history, Amazing Grace. But what you might also not know about Newton is that he was also very politically engaged as an abolitionist in England. And Newton once said, there is only one political maxim that comforts me. And it's not make America great again. It's not vote or die. There is only one political maxim that comforts me. And it is the Lord reigns. And Newton is getting this phrase, the Lord reigns, from the chapter that we just read, Psalm 146, verse 10. The Lord reigns forever. And as I, as I say this verse, in particular for those of you who are um, anxious because your candidate has lost, I want you to know that I am not saying the Lord reigns this political maxim in a way that is cavalier or dismissive of how you feel. I really, really want you to know that. Um, when I was in seminary, I was taking a class on grief and trauma, and we had a guest lecturer who, um, who was a widow after having been married for, for like over 40 years. And after she became a widow, many well-intentioned, good-meaning people at church came up to her after her husband had died. And they said to her, Romans 8.28, God works for the good of those who love him. And it's not that she didn't believe that was true. She did. But considering what she was going through at that time, it was the wrong time to give her that verse. And so for those of you who feel devastated because your candidate has lost and you feel hopeless and you hear me say, the Lord reigns forever, I don't want you to think that I am saying this in a dismissive way or in a cavalier way and that, you know, that all of the problems of the nation will disappear because the Lord reigns forever. I don't want you to hear that. And so I don't want this message to come across in an insensitive, untimely way to you. But the reason why I am saying this and, and, and what I want you to hear me say is that as you are navigating through your anxiety, your fears and your worries and your frustrations, which are leg legitimate, somewhere in the back of your head, somewhere in the depths of your heart, I do want you to tuck away this political maxim that if there is one thing that should comfort us in the midst of all that we are experiencing right now, regardless of our circumstances even, 
the Lord reigns. And so my, uh, my modest goal for today, which is more like a Herculean goal, um, my goal for us today is for us to somehow be able to place our trust in Jesus no matter what life throws at us. And so whether it's politics, suffering, cancer, unemployment, no matter what life throws at us, for us to be able to place our ultimate hope in who Jesus is. And so uh, read with me verse three of our passage. Verse three says, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. Every verse in scripture says something about who we are, our very nature. And so when this verse says, do not place your trust in princes, what this verse is saying is that to be human is to trust. We are trust-based creatures, okay? So we trust politicians, our parents, our own health, our intellect, our resume, our financial security. To be human is to place your trust in something. But what this verse is also saying is that sometimes we place our trust not in the right thing, but we place our trust in the wrong things. And so we, we place our, our trust in creatures instead of the creator. We place our trust in created things instead of the creator of all things. And one of the reasons why misplacing our trust is so dangerous is because of what trust is. The Hebrew word for trust is the word batak. And that simply means to hold on to something, to cling to something and not let it go. Now, if you are holding on and clinging to the wrong thing instead of the right thing and not letting go of that, that can be disastrous. So if you're holding on to a relationship that is not healthy for you, but you refuse to let it go, I mean, that, that's not good. That doesn't bode well for the you know, rest of your life. And so clinging to the right thing is really important because of the nature of what trust is. I'll give you another example of what trust is. Trust To trust is to place your entire weight on something. So right now, a lot of you are sitting on a chair or sitting on your bed and you are putting the full weight of who you are on that chair or on that bed because you trust it. And that's similarly what we do when we place our trust in something. So you might place your trust in uh, your value, your worth, identity in, in a job. And I think one of the reasons why placing the full weight of our identity on our jobs is dangerous is because sometimes COVID can take away our jobs. Sometimes we place our full weight of who we are on our health. But one of the reasons why that's dangerous is because COVID could take away our health. You might right now as a, as a small business owner be placing your trust in the fact that you might get some kind of stimulus package, but that could be dangerous because you might not get a package. And so one of the things that COVID has done and one of the reasons why it's such a it's been such a great pedagogical teacher for us is, is that COVID in many ways has exposed uh, those things we, that we placed our trust in that we thought were unshakable, but are actually very shakable. It's exposed those things. And inevitably, as trust-based creatures, whenever those things are exposed, what we do is then we pivot and we look for something else to trust in. Because again, to be human is to trust. And so we are perpetually in this state or this journey of searching for something to place our value, our identity, our hopes and dreams on something to trust in, to save us, to rescue us. And right now, the thing that all of us are placing our trust in 
are our politicians and who the next president of America will be. And what's interesting is that when you read verse three again, it says to not place our trust in princes. And princes, of course, represent the most powerful people in the world. It doesn't say don't place your trust in the poor or the homeless, but it says to place your, do not place your trust in princes, even though they are the most powerful people in the world. And yet, despite being the most powerful people in the world because of what their title is and what they're able to do, scripture still says to not place our trust in them because they are humans at best. And we see this. Uh, in verse four, where it talks about the limitations of their power when it says in verse four, when their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. And so what this verse is saying is that even the best of men are men at best. And in Hebrew, there's actually a play on words that's taking place here because it says, do not place your trust in human beings or Adam. This is where we get the word Adam. Do not place your trust in Adam because they return to Adama or the ground. Or to put it another way, do not place your trust in human beings because they return back to humus or the dirt. And to give you an idea of just how fleeting our lives are, how temporal our plans are, I want to do a brief history lesson. So what would you say, especially for you history buffs, what would you say is the most or was the most important election in U.S. history? What would you say? Well, this is what the New York Times says. We have had many important elections, but never one so important as now. Now, you might think that the New York Times wrote that this past week. But the truth of the matter is the Times wrote this in 1864 when Abraham Lincoln was running for a second term against George McClellan. And what's interesting is that throughout history, about every 48 years or so, every election, you hear some kind of politi political rhetoric where every election is sort of the most important election. So in 1924, when Coolidge was running against John Davis, one prominent politician wrote, I look upon the coming election as the most important in the history of the country since the Civil War. In 1952, Truman said, I believe, my friends, that we are faced with the most important election in the history of the country. In 92, Clinton said, the upcoming election is the most important election in a generation. 2008, Biden said, when people say this is the single most important election in my lifetime, they're right. 2012, Dennis Prager wrote, this is the most important election since the Civil War and possibly since America's founding. In 2016, Huckabee said, we say this is the most important election in our lifetime, but this one truly, truly is. And I can probably give you another dozen examples of this kind of rhetoric that is used. And so the question is, why is every election the most important election in U.S. history? And the reason for that is because our nation is constantly in flux. Um, and this year is obviously no different. Um, one columnist observed that 2020 started off like 1974. It certainly feels like that. But it started off like 1974 because in 74 there was an impeachment crisis. And then, it, then 2020 quickly became 1918 when there was a pandemic. And then 2020 turned into 1929 when there was an economic crash. And then it turned into 1968 when there was racial unrest in our nation. Why is, uh, why is there a constant uh, unrest 
why is our nation constantly in flux and in this perpetual state of brokenness? I mean, we could blame our politicians and their policies for sure. But I think a more nuanced answer is that it's not just our politicians and their policies, but it's also us. There is something deeply, deeply wrong with us. And in some ways, the world would be a little bit easier to fix if it was those Republicans that were at fault or those Democrats. But the answer isn't so simple. Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn brings this out quite well in his book, The Gulag Archipelago. And Solzhenitsyn was a, uh, a Russian author who uh, critiqued communism, uh, in particular Joseph Stalin, uh, in a private letter that he wrote. That letter was discovered, and as a result of that, he was exiled to a labor camp for eight long years. And after finally being set free from that labor camp, uh, Solzhenitsyn wrote the Gulag Archipelago. And one of the insights that he has from this book, which has sold tens of millions of copies, is this. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Kurt Vonnegut, who is a uh, sci-fi writer, wrote in his book, The Cat's Cradle, um, there's a, a chapter called, chapter, uh, there's a chapter um, um, called, um, uh, What Can a Thoughtful Man Hope for Mankind on Earth Given the Experience of the Past Million Years? So what can a thoughtful man hope for mankind on Earth given the experience of the past million years? And his response is one word, it's the word nothing. And so if we can't place our ultimate hope uh, in these things, why can we place our hope, even when our circumstances are crum crumbling before us, why can we place our hope in who God is? Well, this is what verse six says, he is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. So God is the maker of all things, which means that he is all powerful. But notice the way that God uses his power. In verse seven through nine, it says, he upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Look at how God uses his power. He doesn't use it to serve himself, but he uses it to serve others, in particular the poor, the marginalized, the voiceless, those that are in prison, those that are sick. This is the kind of politician that we serve. This is the kind of God that God is. One of my favorite examples that Tim Keller uses is that whenever he speaks at an event, the, um, the host or MC will come up to him and, and say, so Tim, how do you wanna be introduced? And so sometimes Tim will say, I'm a husband, a father, grandfather, I'm an author, I'm a pastor. Uh, you can introduce me that way. Well, I want you to imagine for a moment, you are hosting a large event and the distinguished panelist or guest is none other than God himself. And so you come up to God and you say, so God, how would you like to be introduced? What do you think God would say? How do you think he would respond? I think he would respond by saying verses seven through nine, where he would say, this is how I wanna be introduced. 
I uphold the cause of the oppressed. I give food to the hungry. I set prisoners free. I give sight to the blind. I lift up those who are bowed down. I love the righteous. I watch over the foreigners and, and sustain the fatherless and the widow. And I frustrate the way of the wicked. That's who I am. And that's how I want to be introduced. And if this is the way that God is, and this is what he does, as followers of God, as followers of Jesus, this is what should be close to our hearts. And this is what we are called to do as well. But don't miss this, okay? Because this is not only what we are called to do for other people. What verses seven through nine are also pointing to the fact is that this is also who we are. It's not just other people. We are imprisoned. Sin, sin enslaves us. It promises us so much freedom, but it places us in shackles. Sin makes us sick. Sin makes us blind so that we cannot see God. Sin makes us hungrier and thirstier still. Even though so many sinful things promise to satiate and satisfy us, they leave us hungrier still. Sin estranges us from God and from one another. Sin makes us fatherless and, and orphans. And so in many ways, what these, voices, uh, what these verses are pointing to is our spiritual condition. And so what do we do? We are constantly on the search to place our hopes and dreams in something to save us. And so whether it's our politicians, our job, getting married, having kids, and we are constantly looking for something to fill this, this Grand Canyon-like hole uh, that is in our hearts. And sometimes we find something that kind of works. Maybe it is a job or a relationship. And so on the outside, our lives look very curated and manicured on Instagram and everything seems to be going so well. But the moment you ask someone how mentally they are doing or how what their emotional well-being is like, the moment you ask them how their interior life is like, they will tell you that their lives are a mess and that their interior life does not match their exterior life. And the reason for that is because when our, our relationship is ruptured from God, there's a, there's, a, there's a chasm that is still there. There's a black hole and a void that we're constantly looking to to support the weight of our lives because these things were never meant to support the weight of our life. A chair might be able to support our weight, but a job or a relationship or a marriage, it cannot support the weight of our entire lives, our souls. And the reason for that is because of really what, who God is. You know, the story of Christianity begins with God creating the world and everything in it. He passes the baton off to humanity and he commissions us to build great cities, make art, and to sort of push, push the Garden of Eden to the rest of the world. But we know how this story goes. Instead of unleashing the full potential of Garden of Eden to the rest of the world uh, for it to flourish, what we did was we tried to do that apart from God. But we were never meant to make the world a better place apart from who God is. And what sin does and what sin did is that it ruptured our relationship with God so that it was broken. And as a result of that brokenness, we have constantly been on the search to find something to fill that void that is in us. And that is why Jesus came to fill that void. Jesus came to be our substitute in our place to save us. Jesus was uh, the one that was imprisoned for us. He was the one that was uh, sick and cursed for us. 
He was the one that was estranged from God the Father. He was the one that was orphaned and fatherless on the cross when God abandoned him. And the reason why this great politician named King Jesus came to do all these things and to suffer in this way was so that we would not have to face the consequences for our sins. And he did that to fix the inner chaos that is in our lives. Now, I mentioned before that the word trust means to hold on to something and to cling to something. And what that means is that if you really want to place your ultimate trust in Jesus, what that also means is that you have to let go of whatever else you are holding onto so tightly for, for validation, for, for your identity. Whatever those things might be, you have to let go of them so that you can cling to something else. So let me, let me close with one final story and why we should place our ultimate hope in Jesus. And it comes from Lord of the Rings and there's a specific episode in The Return of the King uh, where Gandalf the wizard and Pippin the hobbit are barricaded in this chamber. And on the other side of, this, of the door are these evil orcs and they are trying to uh, pummel, you know, pummel the door to the ground so that they can get Gandalf and Pippin. And so Pippin being this uh, small hobbit is worried and he's afraid and he's fearful. And Pippin looks up to Gandalf and he says, Gandalf, I didn't think that it would end this way. And Gandalf looks at him and he says, end? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we must all take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass, and then you see it. And Pippin says, what, Gandalf? What do you see? And Gandalf says, white shores and beyond, a far green country under a swift sunrise. And Pippin says, well, that doesn't sound so bad. And Gandalf responds by saying, no, no, it isn't. Even though the orcs were on the other side of the door, Gandalf knew there was more to their story. Gandalf was able to see and sought the next pages, even though Pippin was not able to see those next pages. And for us as Christians, it is always important to remember that this is not the end, that no matter what is happening in our lives and no matter how much our circumstances might be falling apart, this is not the end. The end is merely leaving the preface for chapter one and all that is ahead. So let me quote uh, one final quote from Scott Sauls, who says, no matter our situation, our very best days are always ahead of us and never ever behind us. How do we know this? Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Let's pray together.